Jesus, the mediator, and we're going to make an earnest attempt to get into chapter 13, the first four verses. But in Hebrews 12, I want to begin with verse number 16. Excuse me, let me, let me begin with 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or a profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For all of you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, that burned with fire, nor into blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the words should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. Now let us come down to verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaks. For if they escape not who refuse him that spake on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. So Jesus, the mediator, is what we're going to teach on. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're grateful that we do have another opportunity to fellowship. There are a number of places we all could be on a Tuesday evening, but we've gathered together to study your word. Help us to magnify your son, the work of redemption. Help us to appreciate the beauty of your grace, your favor, your love, and your kindness that you've extended to each one of us. We pray, Lord, that we depart from this place tonight knowing that your love is real and true. These things we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen. We concluded the Bible study last week talking about this individual by the name of Esau, and we talked about a root of bitterness. It is possible for a root of bitterness to develop inside of you. It produces unforgiveness. The fruits of unforgiveness are not healthy for any believer nor any person on the planet. The moment you make the decision that you're going to live in unforgiveness... You're going to be bitter toward people. You can expect your life to be troubled, and then all that is bottled up inside of you pretty soon, it's going to come out eventually, and you're going to trouble other people. Some of the meanest people you'll ever meet are folks who are embittered. And because the bitterness is inside, they lash out and they attack people in every direction. They can't help themselves. It's the fruit of bitterness. They can't stop it even if they wanted to, and the only answer for that is Christ. That's what the Lord's trying to say. Now, he gives us an example in this gentleman by the name of Esau. How did bitterness begin in his life? Esau was a man that did not care for spiritual things. If we think of the phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, at one time, it could have been the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But Esau chose to sell his birthright for food. His, his belly was his God. Because he sold the birthright, in the end, the blessing came to Jacob because Jacob and his mother conspired to trick their father and their father gave the blessing to Jacob thinking that it was Esau, even though Jacob understood that this may not be Esau. And when it was all over, it says that Esau felt bad about it, and he actually cried about it. Now, I don't think he shed tears because he had sinned, even though he did. He transgressed the tradition of the patriarchal family. The tradition was that the, the firstborn receives the inheritance. It's like in all of our families, if you have siblings, according to Old Testament teachings, the oldest boy would receive the largest share of everything. He didn't care anything about that tradition. So he shed tears not because he transgressed that tradition, but he shed tears because of the consequences of his action. He lost everything. And it's like a person who cries not because they've done wrong, but because they've been caught. That, that's what happened 
with, with this gentleman here. He wanted to put it in reverse and go back and do it all over. He wanted a do-over. He couldn't get one. He couldn't get one because of the fact he had did it in such a bad way. So inside of him, because his brother tricked him, you know the story how he, he, he rose up in anger. He said, I'm going to kill my own brother. Now you think about this. You must really be a bitter person if you're willing to spill the blood of your own sibling. You have to be angry. Like Cain killed Abel. You must be a very angry person if you would take a knife and plunge it into somebody who, who shares the same parent that, that you share. But bitterness will do that. Bitterness will transform a nice person. And when, it, when, it's, when, when that bitterness is done with them and they're, they're so swallowed up in unforgiveness, they're unrecognizable to themselves and they're unrecognizable to you. I've met a lot of people who do not practice forgiveness. Uh, the only time they believe in forgiveness is when they want to be forgiven, but they don't want to give it to somebody else. But true forgiveness looks at someone's deeds and says, I know that you have done a lot of things wrong. However, on the basis of the blood of Jesus that forgave me of my sins, I'm going to extend that same compassion to you and forgive you of your sins. That's scripture. So now then the Lord says to them, using that same Example of this man who lost his blessing and all of the bitterness that Paul goes on to say, you haven't come to a mountain that could be touched. Now, Paul is referring back to the story of Israel receiving the Ten Commandments. Let's let's go through the story. God brought Israel out of Egypt. He did one miracle after another for them. He told them that I have redeemed you, purchased you, bought you. You now belong to me. You essentially are slaves to Yahweh, to Jehovah. Since the Lord delivered them, he said, here are the conditions of our relationship. You cannot have any other gods. I'm your only God. Forget the Egyptian gods. Forget all the other gods that people worship around the world. I'm going to be your only God because I am the only God. All the other religions are superstitions, superstitions anyhow. Well, when Moses went up into the mountain and he received the Ten Commandments, the scripture says that the, the mountain the, the mountain tops were full of fire. There was a thick cloud that was on top of it. There were flashes of lightning, the sound of thunder. And out of that thick darkness, the voice of God said to Moses, come on up here. So now you prepare the children of Israel, tell them for three days that the, the men are not to have physical relations with their women and don't let any animal come anywhere beyond this border as you come to the mountain. And if any beast comes beyond this particular point, that beast is to be stoned or killed. Folks, that's that's a pretty tough law. That would make a lot of people mad and that would anger and offend a number of people today. But that certainly is what God said back then. He said that. Well, because of the harshness of the law that came down on Mount Sinai, Paul contrasts that with a new mountain called Mount Zion. So we have an image of the Old Testament coming of the law, the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai, which represents the law. Then we have this image of Mount Sinai, which represents grace. And the two are held opposite of one another so that we will have a great appreciation for the grace of God by praising the Lord for what we've been delivered from. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Ten Commandments, every one of the Ten Commandments is also locatable in the New Testament. The New Testament says you shouldn't steal. It says you shouldn't take the name of the Lord in vain. The New Testament says you shouldn't lie. You shouldn't commit adultery. All of these things are in there. It speaks about uh, remembering the Sabbath and so on, not having any other God. So don't think because we're Christians and we're living under the grace of God that we no longer have any kind of law. The moral law is embedded in the grace of God. And the moment someone becomes a Christian inside of them, when they're born again, they have this new seed that is planted and this new seed grows and develops. And out of that comes a harvest of a Christian life. Jesus is formed in us and 
our lives are touched and changed by that. So this Old Testament mountain, when the Ten Commandments came, the, the, the vision was so terrible and frightening that when the, the children of Israel came to the mountain and they looked up there and saw all of that stuff going on up there and smoke coming off, they heard the voice of God and the earth began to shake. They came so far and they stopped and they said, oh, wait a minute, Moses, you go talk to him. We don't want him to talk to us. They were terrified. And the scripture even says here in Hebrews chapter 12 that Moses himself was also fearful of this. Well, Mount Sinai was designed to produce fear. But the scripture says perfect love casts out fear. God doesn't want you to live your life as a Christian with the kind of fear that causes you to believe God's going to come down and just pounce upon you and pound you and absolutely destroy you. That's not the image we're we're getting here in this text. Verse 22 says, rather than all of you come into Mount Sinai, you come to Mount Sion, which is the city of the living God. A city. It's a spiritual place. Like New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. The city of the living God. There's the city now that we as Christians represent. And then there's the city that's going to descend from heaven, which is New Jerusalem. He speaks of an innumerable company of angels. All of these are spiritual figures and types. A general assembly, the church of the firstborn, Christ being the firstborn, first begotten of the dead. Names of people which are written in heaven. Did you know that God keeps a record of names in heaven, people who are part of his family? Scripture says in Romans, excuse me, Revelation, it says you should do everything you can to overcome lest I blot your name out of the book of life. Moses speaks of a record of remembrance, a book of remembrance. That means the moment you accepted the Lord and you asked Jesus to come into your heart, at whatever point in your life, if you were raised in church and always been a Christian, always loved the Lord, have never known anything else, at, at some point, w w whenever this whole thing became real and true to you, your name was inscribed in a book. In a book. And it's written down in heaven. And as you can see in verse 23, it speaks of God as the judge. Some people don't like that. We love to say God is love. But have you ever thought about the fact God judges what we do? Your actions are not actions that are solely accountable to you and you alone. Your, your actions are actions that are accountable to God. You, you are not your own God, and I'm not my own God. You, you may believe on certain days, I can do whatever I want. Nobody has a right to tell me anything. Well, you can think like that, but I can promise you there's somebody bigger and badder than you, and that's God. Scripture says God is the judge. We're born into the kingdom recognizing that the kingdom has a king and his name is God. Babies come into this world with the understanding that mom and dad are in charge. The children grow into that subjection, that, that relationship. Same thing as Christians. We become believers in the Lord and we recognize there is someone who controls our life. So your, your thoughts, your habits, your customs, your beliefs have to be shaped by what Scripture says. And when that occurs, you can better understand the last sentence of verse 23. The spirits of just men made perfect. God does this by his grace. Somebody accepts the Lord. The blood of Jesus cleanses them from sin. They start a brand new life. They're now considered to be just or righteous. Now, verse 24, the first sentence here, we'll take a little time to talk about that. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. What is it that makes the new covenant different from the old covenant? We've got to give a little history. God started with one man by the name of Adam. With Adam, he gave that man a wife by the name of Eve. All of humanity comes from these two people, Adam and Eve. This is the story of the Bible. Once Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, God gave them authority in the Garden of Eden to obey him, gave him the, the power, gave them the power to obey him. They chose to allow the devil to deceive them. So if we have God, we have the devil, if we have good, we have bad, if we have righteousness, we have sin. The devil came in and tricked 
Adam and Eve and caused them to eat of the fruit of the tree they should not have tasted of. And the moment they did, they sinned and immediately they recognized they were sinful and they started trying to hide from God. Because that's what people do when we when we recognize there's sin in our life and we don't feel clean and we don't feel holy. We want to avoid God, stay out of his presence and we want to avoid church people. That's what the scripture teaches. Because we don't feel good. And if you've ever taken the time to witness to someone who's living in sin, then you know how it is sometimes in trying to talk with them and they know they've done wrong. Just like if you're reprimanding your child for something they've done wrong, sometimes it's difficult for them to look you in the eye. They feel bad. They just drop their head, look down because of guilt, grief, condemnation. That's how Adam and Eve were. The Lord came to Adam and Eve, and rather than just making them feel worse about what they did, he actually covered their nakedness. They had to leave the garden, but God gave them an opportunity to start all over again on the outside of the garden, and and they did. They started with a family. Cain and Abel were born. But you know the story how Cain rose up and killed his own sibling because he was jealous of them. So now we see because of the presence of sin in the world, now we have all of these different kinds of emotions, these different kinds of feelings, attitudes that are wrong. And one generation after another, the sin continued to multiply and man's bad deeds continued to grow and multiply till man's bad deeds were greater than man's good deeds. And that's where we get the story of Noah. God had to flood the earth because man was sinful. God looked at one man and his family and said, you guys have been obedient to me. Everybody else is not listening to me, but you build an ark 100 years. A century it took them to build that boat. And for one century, God showed grace to the nations of the world, trying to get them to change because Noah was a preacher of righteousness and they never listened to a thing he had to say. You want to talk about beating your head against the wall Try to tell somebody right from wrong and they don't want to listen to you. You ever talk to somebody and when you're talking to them, you can tell the words are just going in every direction but inside their head? That's what happened with Noah when, when he, was, he was preaching. Now, fortunately for me, you folks aren't like that. Yeah. You, you're, you're, you're very, very attentive. It, it's only occasionally when I'm teaching or ministering the word of God and somebody just kind of has a look on their face to me like, will you just get on with this, please? Or, or if I'm if if I'm somewhere else and someone decides to go to sleep on me, you know, yeah. Hey, I used to hear those old preachers tell that story about the man that was always falling asleep in church. That man would get up, he'd preach the gospel, he'd unburden his heart, and the folks would be listening. Then there'd be one man, he'd throw his head back, and I mean, he'd be sawing logs right in the middle of the sermon, and people were just looking at him, looking at him, and, you know, sound like small aircraft taking off, you know, just making all this noise. Well, one day that preacher, he got tired of that. That man went to go on to sleep on him again, and so he got the attention, the attention of the man next to him. He said, now look, elbow that man and wake him up. He's going to sleep during my sermon. And that man said, why should I? You're the one who put him to sleep. You wake him up. Okay. So I hope I hope we're not putting anybody to sleep here. That's the that's the whole point. Okay, that's the point. Here's the thing, though. Mankind had to start all over again with Noah and his family after the flood. Forty days and forty nights it rained. Scripture says they were in that ark essentially for a year or so, a long time, waiting before the waters receded. They came out of the ark and had to start all over again. Do you know what man did? Went right back to sin. That is our habit. That is our nature. God delivers us. God helps us. God redeems us. And then no sooner he does a miracle for us, we fall right back into that old pattern of sin. Well, by the time Abraham came along, the Lord was working his plan of redemption Because he knew he had to create a nation, but he had to start with someone. He started with a man named Abraham. From that man, he created a family. From that family, he started a tribe. That tribe then became a nation. That nation ended up down in in Egypt, and it's that nation that the Lord delivered to whom he gave the Ten Commandments, the Jewish people. 
Well, the Jewish people had a bad habit of following God, then going opposite of God, following God, then going opposite of God. But because the Israelites would not be obedient to the law of God, because it was never God's plan that animals and the sacrifice of animals animals would be the primary way of redemption, the scripture says at some point in time God sent forth his son. So Jesus came into this world to be the mediator to stand between God and between mankind because there's hostility between God and between man. Jesus came to mediate. He was the third party trying to bring reconciliation. Reconciliation, I I know a little bit about that because we had a whole lot of that in our home. When my two older brothers would get into a fight and then you try to get in between and try to stop them from fighting each other. And then in the process of doing that, you're getting hit as you're trying to hold somebody and all of that. The only people who could mediate without getting hurt was mom and dad. Because mom and dad would yell downstairs, boys, don't make me come down there. And then you see people go the opposite direction. Jesus became the mediator, and when he came into this world, he bridged the gap or the gulf that was created by sin. And anybody now, doesn't matter what country they're from, doesn't matter how old or how young, if they can understand the the truths of the gospel, they can accept Christ as their Savior, and they can be reconciled to God and have a relationship with him. That's mediation. He got involved so that we can come to him and say, Lord, forgive me of all of my sins. That's what makes this covenant different from the old covenant. We don't have to go and offer up an animal. Jesus was the lamb sacrifice. We don't have to go and keep a bunch of Old Testament rituals and traditions. Jesus simply says, walk in love. He that walks in love, there's no occasion of stumbling in him. No offense is caused by that. Well, Scripture says in the last sentence of verse 24 that this blood speaks better things than that of Abel. Cain and Abel were the children of Adam and Eve. When Cain killed Abel, God came to Cain and said, where is your brother? Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? Why are you asking me about him? He's a grown man. He can be anywhere he wants to be. Why Why are you concerning me with that? The Lord said, well, I can hear his blood that you spilled crying out from the ground. Now, if Abel's blood, figuratively, could get the attention of God and speak to the Lord, how much more the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? Innocent blood, when it's shed, it talks to God. That's the key here. Now, you think of this. I don't know how many millions have been lost. But think of every baby that's conceived in the womb. And then there's a mama or a dad or somebody who says, we don't want this life to continue. Scripture says that God knew Jeremiah before he was formed in the womb. Yeah. Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, That he was born to manifest Christ. So every baby born into this world has one distinct purpose if they ever come to learn it. And that is my life is my life exists in order for me to exhibit Jesus Christ, to manifest Jesus Christ, to be a walking, living illustration of who Jesus is. That's what my life is. But how much innocent blood has been shed since. People around the world made it legal to take the life of a baby. I can only say I'm glad my mom kept me. Oh, pray you're glad your mom kept you. There's a lot of infants that have died whose blood still is a witness to the king. And I'm sure God just wonders how, how, how long can a nation or nations around the world March in the streets and protest with signs saying, save the spotted owl. And how how long can we pass legislation to 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 save certain pieces of land for a beetle? And make sure that we protect the 
the wetlands for the alligators and preserve the the uh, waters for the dolphins and the whales. But yet when it comes to something that has a soul, like a baby, we don't open our mouths at all. The blood of Jesus Christ speaketh better things than that of Abel, but innocent blood testifies and God hears it. God hears it. Every generation, God hears it. Verse 25. So see that you don't refuse him that speaks. If the people under the old covenant, the children of Israel, if they could not escape when they refused to listen to God speak, how much more shall we also, if we turn away, we'll end up in trouble. When God begins to deal with your heart, and he says to you, repent, turn from your sin, go the right way, live for me, don't turn your back on me. When God begins to deal with your heart in that way, it is very important for you to respond to that. That's conviction. That's powerful. You can run from me, but you can't run from him. You can get in your car and you can drive away from me, but you cannot drive away from God. Whether you're in a submarine in the depths of the ocean or in a rocket that's orbiting the moon. If, if you're in a treehouse, you can't get away from God. His voice is still able to reach you. You can go to sleep and be in the middle of a dream and God is still able to communicate with you. You can go out in your backyard and pick a flower. God can still communicate with you through the petals of that flower. Because you'll look at that beautiful thing and God begins to deal with your heart and says, if I could make all of this, the beautiful color, the, the, the image that's in this, why, why would you run from me? Scripture says, make sure that you don't refuse him that, that speaks to you. So that tells you you can refuse. Mm -hmm. You have a choice. You have a free will. If someone comes to you and offers you the gospel and say you have an opportunity now to receive Christ as your savior. You can say yes, you can say no, but I'll tell you this. You say no. And there's something down on the inside. It's almost like. It just registers that no. And then the next time, it's easier to say no again. And pretty soon that heart gets harder and harder and harder. But when God begins to wrestle with you in the middle of the night about your life and about your condition, you need to respond because verse 26 says, whose voice then shook the earth. If God's voice is strong enough to shake the earth and the psalmist says his voice can shake the cedar trees, that means that they don't come too hard for God. No man or woman is so entrenched in sin that God can't uproot them. And I'll give you a good illustration of that. If, if God can save me from sin, he can save anybody. Yeah. We, we've got a couple of people in here by the name of John. If God could save them, he can save anybody. You understand? See, anybody. There's no, no, doubt, no doubt about it. And if, if we understand that the Lord can speak a word and then our world sometimes goes to shaking. Sometimes we don't understand why it is that things collapse over here. The roof comes down or the, the, the uh, floor caves in or whatever. But there are some people in this world that God has to use some quite extraordinary circumstances to get their attention. Yeah, I've often thought it's a whole lot easier just to try to respond to God the first time than to have to go through some of these other things that you read about in the children of Israel's life because the, the scripture says we take them as our examples. So if, if, if I read some of these stories in the Old Testament and, and I'm like, oh my word, <laughs> I don't want to be crosswise with God. I want to be where I'm supposed to supposed to be so the scripture says yet once more i shake not the earth only but also heaven and this word once more signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of those things that are made so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain if there's anything in your life or my life that can be shaken if there's anything in your life that's unstable if you have beliefs in your life that are really not rock solid the possibility certain events can cause those to 
collapse. I'll give you an illustration. If you don't really believe you're saved from sin and you're not sure that the Lord has delivered you from iniquity, there are certain trials, tribulations you'll pass through where you'll wake up one morning and you'll wonder whether or not you're really a Christian. I've seen a whole lot of people wrestle with their salvation. You go back and read the stories of these Puritans from the 17th century and some of the ones that came here, in particular like the diary of, I think his name was Daniel or David Brannard. I don't know if you've ever read, read that, but his biography was written by Jonathan Edwards, who also was a very popular preacher back in the, the 18th century. But if you listen, if you read about how these folks agonized over trying to become Christian, I mean, it was just so much work to try to do because they believed some were elected to go to heaven. Others were not selected to go to heaven. So they were constantly striving to get to a place where they had something called assurance. You can have that if you just trust in the blood of the Lord. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, and you have enough sense to know that even though being like Jesus, that's the, that's the objective, that you'll never make perfection in, in and of yourself anyhow, then you'll realize it's the grace of God that's going to help you anyway. And that's how you'll sleep well at night. When I put my head on the pillow in the evening and go to sleep, I sleep well because I know I cannot save myself. I did not save myself. The plan of redemption is not something I created on my own. It's not anything I created anyhow. But God the Holy Ghost comes upon a person, convicts them of their sin. At the same time, conviction has come. The ability to believe is there. The person begins to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they realize that he's done it all for them, then there's nothing else to do but just trust that and believe. But there are people who struggle with believing it can be that simple. You know, I just can't make a leap of faith like that and, and believe that God would, would help me. Some people struggle with that, the leap, leap of faith. There was a minister who's gone to heaven now, but he pastored 10th Presbyterian Church in uh, Pennsylvania for many, many years. A guy named James Montgomery Boyce, but he, he tells a story of, and this is what he uses to describe people who struggle with the, the leap in faith and trusting in God. He said, he said, he said there's, there's a man that was mountain climbing, coming up the side of a very steep hill. And he said, suddenly there was an earthquake. And he said, this man started falling and falling rapidly to the ground. And, and, and somehow his arm got hooked on what was like a tree branch growing out the side of the mountain. And he's just holding on for dear life. And he looks down and it's about 2,500 or better, 2,500 feet or more. And if he lets go, he knows he's going to die. And so he, the, the man's not sure that there's a God. You know, when you're in a situation like that, somebody will pray. But the man's holding on with that, with that branch, and he, and he says, God, I, I don't know if you're real, but, but if you're up there, could you please rescue me? He said, after a while, there was a voice that came back and said, yes, I'm here. I've heard your prayer. I'll rescue you. Just simply let go of that branch, and you'll begin to fall, but I'll catch you. You don't have to worry. I'll catch you. I'll, I'll rescue you. You won't be hurt. Just let go of the branch. And the man holding on to the branch, he looked down, saw how far that was, then he looked up. He said, is there anybody else up there? Okay. That's how many people are. They, they, they want God, but they want a God that will rescue them on their own terms. See? If you're going to help me, Lord, help me on the basis of how I want to be helped. That's how many people are. So the scripture here says there will come a point in time when that which can be shaken will be shaken. But verse 28 says we'll receive a kingdom that cannot be moved. This world changes all the time. The cultures change all the time. There's a culture shift with nearly every generation. But we're part of a kingdom where things do not change because they're eternal. A billion years from now, we'll look differently because we'll have different bodies. But we'll be in heaven. We'll be with the Lord. But we'll still be talking about how wonderful God is. The kingdom will not change. So let us have grace. 
so that we can serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. The best way to serve God is gracefully and with godly fear. There's a difference between godly fear and ungodly fear. And ungodly fear is when you're terrified that you've done something wrong and somebody's going to try to hurt or harm you. And they're going to try to beat you into a state of condemnation. Godly fear is when you just simply have a a reverence for God, where you acknowledge he's greater than you are. You need his help. And that's that's what reverence is. It's to love God so much that we don't take his name in vain. So we don't use the word Jesus as a substitute for a cuss word. We don't we don't say uh, to people when we're angry, God damn you or God damn it. We don't we don't take the name of the the Lord in vain. God's God's name and descriptions of God are not to be used as profanities. Right. We honor God. We reverence God. What do you do with something that you reverence it? You, you highly esteem it, you regard it in a great way, and you do everything you can to make sure you take care of it. That's a relationship with God. If you have an antique at home, a vase, a cup, a necklace, a ring that comes from your great-grandparent or has been passed down through several generations, you're very careful about who you let play around that thing because you don't want something to happen. Your relationship with God should be so precious to you that you will not allow anything or anyone to come into your life that's going to damage it. That relationship is powerful. Then he says, our God is a consuming fire. That's true. One thing about God you need to know is that you cannot control him, you cannot contain him. You you cannot You can't tame wildfire. California, Colorado, places like that. Our God is a consuming fire. He's a spiritual fire. There's nothing you can do to stop him from working at consuming things. Now, what what does that mean? Consuming fire. Fire in scripture is used for a variety of different things, even naturally. Now, I never knew this till I moved to... uh, rural areas after I left Cleveland, Ohio, I never understood why people burned the topsoil of fields. But that's a mechanism of purging. And it's also, uh, in a sense, going to help make the ground a bit more fertile. But the the burning of it is going to help with the productivity of whatever crop they're going to put in the ground. So consider God is a consuming fire in your life. Fire in the Old Testament is used for a lot of different things. On the day of Pentecost, 120 people were gathered together. Scripture says the Spirit of God descended into the room. They looked around, saw embers or tongues of fire burning above each person's head. They began to speak in different languages. John the Baptist had already told them, When I'm out of here, somebody's coming who's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, a consuming fire. So this is a fire that's designed to purge us. The Old Testament speaks of a refiner's fire. I'm curious, Steve, when you're throwing pots, how hot is that furnace? And you're placing it in there. About 2,000 degrees. Now you think of that. You're going to take clay and you're going to put it in there, and then when it comes out of the fire, there's actually going to be something that's useful. A container, a cup. You say, how, how in the world can, can you put something under that kind of pressure, and then it still be useful? Well, think about the kind of pressure God puts us under. First Peter says, don't be surprised by the fiery trial of faith that you have. You don't know that you have faith until you go through a trial. You don't know that you have faith until you're put in a position where you have to wrestle with unbelief and doubt and fear and anxiety. Then it's at that point you realize there is an anchor down here in my soul, and I really do believe, even though everything I see is contrary to what I'm believing. Yeah, fire. If you go to India and certain places in the Middle East, you will find a tinker on different street corners. 
And if you want a bracelet, if you want a ring, if you want some kind of a uh, anklet or charm or something like that, you can walk over there and say to him that you want a silver uh, ring to put on your finger or something like that. I'm telling you that man will take a piece, a chunk of silver. He's going to put it in a pan, circular like that, and then he's going to put it over a fire. And he's going to hold that thing over the fire and you're going to watch it just melt down and you're going to see all of that just kind of just moving all around the place as he's doing this here. Then he's going to have a strainer. He's going to take that strainer and pour, pour all that silver that melted silver through the strainer. And the strainer is going to hold on to all the impurities. And then he's going to take what's left and pour that into a cast or a mold. Then it's going to cool off. And when he's done. He's going to have whatever it is that you wanted. So this, this is what God does. We wonder sometimes, God, why do you permit me to pass through this? Why do you let hardships come to me? Of all the different people who've had to experience this particular test or trial, why have you allowed my life to go in this particular direction where it seems to me like you haven't been fair and you haven't been just to me? When the bottom line is, What we need to be trying to figure out is what kind of a life is God trying to mold into us? Or what is he trying to shape us into? I can tell you what it is. He wants us to be conformed into the image of his son. If you have a problem loving people, God needs to put you in circumstances that's going to require you to love people. If you have a problem with patience, endurance, you may very well have to walk down a road or pass through something that's going to teach you to wait. If you have an anger problem, excessive sorrow, pity, self-pity, always want to be the victim, want people to feel sorry for you, then you may have to pass through certain things in your life that's going to cause you to turn away from those attitudes so that you can become more and more like Christ. Jesus never went to Calvary and said, please feel sorry for me because I'm dying as an innocent man. Not one time. Our God is a consuming fire. Look at chapter 13. This will be quick. Let brotherly love continue. Don't be forgetful to entertain strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Love is something that we must do. Make it a verb. Don't let it just be a noun. Make it a verb. But when it comes to people you don't know, he says sometimes they could be angels. You're entertaining. Be very careful about how you talk to that homeless man standing on the corner that has that sign that says, I'm a homeless vet. Would you please help me? You don't know that could be an angel, you don't know. Be very careful about that. When you see somebody walking along the highway and, and, and they're doing this, no, no need for you to throw a hand up and cuss them or talk about them or say anything like that. Just be very careful about that. You, you don't know who these people are. There have been many people in this world that have found themselves in difficulties and they themselves had somebody come out of nowhere to help them. And then they couldn't figure out when or where they came from. Just supernatural, it seems. The story of Abraham. Remember, he had to to, uh, try to stand in the gap for his nephew Lot. Lot was living in Sodom and Gomorrah, a place so wicked, vile, that the judgment of God was going to come, a city so infamous that the, the sin still to this day carries the name of it, Sodom. And the Lord said to Abraham, yes, if you know, if, if, if I can find 15 or 20 people that are righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, I won't destroy the place. Abraham, thinking about his nephew, he said, Lord, what about 10? The Lord said, if I can find 10 people there, I won't destroy it. Well, he couldn't find 10. And you know the story of how the angels walked into Sodom and Gomorrah, went to Lot's house, and the angels looked like everyday people. Like you and me. And the men of Sodom, they were homosexuals. They looked at the angels 
didn't know they were angels, just thought they were few more, few men coming into the city. They looked at the men and went to the house and started beating on the door and said, bring those men out here so we can have sex with them. It was wicked. It's still wicked. And Lot said, no, no, brethren, you can't do this. These are visitors in my home. You can't you can't rape them and seduce them and physically assault them sexually. Absolutely not. And you remember how they were trying to beat through the door and the angels went to the door and smote them in with blindness so that they couldn't even get in there and have their way with them. When it was all over, Lot lost a lot of his family, ended up in a cave up on a mountaintop somewhere and Sodom and Gomorrah was burned with fire and brimstone. So here's what I'm getting at. They didn't know they were angels. Angels look just like us. Remember the story of the three Hebrew boys in the book of Daniel? They were thrown into the fiery furnace. Then they looked into the fiery furnace and said, I see a fourth man. Angel. Was in there with the three protecting. Had no idea. They didn't know. It was an angel. They just thought it was another man that was in there. So maybe in your own life, sometimes you've had people that have helped you that have been sent specifically by God. And you kind of look around and wonder, where did they come from? How how were they able to help me and, and get out of my life and into my life without me knowing it? Verse three says people that are in chains or in jail or in prison, remember them. Considering that you yourself could very well suffer such adversity. This is one of the favorite verses of people who serve in the underground churches and persecuted church around the world. As sure as we're here tonight going through this Bible study, there's probably somebody somewhere around the world reading the Bible by candlelight or by lantern. Somebody sitting in jail, praying, asking God, is there anybody that even cares about me, Lord? Is there anybody praying about me? Remember those that are in bonds. When I take trips and go overseas and come back and tell stories to people around America, I'm not telling stories because I'm looking for pity or trying to make people feel bad who are living a very good lifestyle here in America. What I'm trying to do is make people aware of the fact that there are people less fortunate than ourselves. And just a couple of dollars can help them and bless them. That's all I'm trying to do. If I had to go knock on every door throughout America to raise funds to help people that are in jail or help people that are poor, preachers that want to minister the word of God, I'd do it because there's nothing wrong with that. See, You said, well, there are people here in America that are poor and suffering. That's true. And they got people here that speak for them also. So we praise the Lord for the opportunities that God gives us. But when the Lord lays a burden upon your heart, you run with that burden. You got to work to get out from under that burden. And the only way to do that is to obey God. That's all you can do. Here's the last verse. Verse four. Marriage is honorable. The bed undefiled. Whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. The present generation does not care much for marriage, and you hear very often that the divorce rate around the nation is high, and you will often hear that the divorce rate in the church is equal to what it is in the world. I don't know. I have no idea. I can tell you this, though. Marriage is an honorable thing. We should encourage it. We should thank the Lord for it. The Bible says that it's not good for a man to be alone. Marriage is honorable. When someone says it's just a piece of paper, it's more than a piece of paper. It's a commitment. It's a covenant. It's two people saying in the presence of God, I love you so much there's nobody that will ever come between us and I put you first. That's what marriage is all about. Two people becoming one flesh. Two wheels blended into one. That's how, that's how God teaches it. For this reason, a man leaves his mother and father and joins himself to his wife, and the two become one. Marriage is an honorable thing. Even if we have Hollywood actors and actresses who say, well, we we started a family, and we're a family as much as anybody else, and we're not married. Well, you're not the standard. The Bible is the standard. And as a Christian, 
I live my life in accordance with what the Bible says. Marriage is honorable. Well, the, the, the justices on the Supreme Court said that marriage is between a guy and a guy. A gal and a gal. Doesn't matter what they say. The government has nothing to do with marriage. They never defined marriage. Marriage came from Scripture. Marriage came from God. That, that's the key. So it never was God's plan in the beginning for Adam to have anybody other than Eve. God made Eve for Adam. We've said it a thousand times. Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. That didn't come out right. Yeah. Adam and Eve, see? Marriage is honorable. So we, 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 don't, we don't say something is wrong simply because we think it's wrong. We say something is wrong because the Bible condemns it. The Bible says it's inappropriate for a young lady to be in physical relations with another young lady. But then also it says that sexual relations outside of the covenant of marriage are wrong. And those aren't good words there to describe the people participating in that. Whoremongers. Oh, that's, how many of you know that's not a good word? That's not a good word. If you, if, you, if you think that's a compliment, you need to read that again. Adulterer. That's not a good word. Adulterer. Two people that are married and they step outside the marriage covenant and sleep with someone else. That's not good. God says we don't do that. It says God certainly will judge. And if he will judge, that obviously means it is wrong. So in a nation today that promotes promiscuity amongst young people and adults, in a world that teaches it's better for you to promote your sexuality, in a world that on nearly every commercial, every sitcom and movie wants to push nudity into the faces of people to provoke these appetites and these lusts. God says marriage is honorable. The bed is undefiled in marriage. The only time two people should gather together for physical relations is when there is that covenant. Folks, I didn't write this book. This book was written long before I was born or you were born. And long after we all have passed from this life, if the king doesn't come, it will still say the same thing. We can't change it. And if we can change it, then it's not the Bible I want to read. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this evening. As we look into the word of God, we can see how important it is to have your son. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the one that came and died for us. There's so much truth in these scriptures. God, help us to be a people of love. We don't want to be self-righteous. And Father, we don't even want to be the kind of people that condemn folks. We simply want to point people in the direction of the scripture and say, thus saith the Lord. So God, I pray throughout the rest of this week when we do have opportunity to talk to people about what the word says, you give us boldness. Help us to speak clearly. We pray the conviction of the Holy Ghost would come upon the people whom we speak. These things we do pray for in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen, Amen.